Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the RBC Podcast. My name's Mark Cleesby and today I'm talking with Professor Katerina Sturk about the current epidemic of influenza of H1N1 strain, otherwise known as swine flu, with particular reference to the epidemiology. Okay, Katerina, thanks very much for joining us today. I thought I'd start by asking you, with regard to the, the, the current flu pandemic that's out there in humans, how did this actually come about? Um, there were some suspect cases originally reported from Mexico, from a, a little village where there's actually also um, quite a large pig farm. Mm-hmm. And that triggered investigation um, because it was kind of unusual seasonal pattern and also because of the uh, number of cases. And, and from then um, it kind of evolved very rapidly and with retrospect, uh, I think now the um, hypothesis is that it is, may have originated actually from California or somewhere further north of right. Mexico. It may actually not have been the first cases that were seen in Mexico, but then obviously there were quite a large number of cases very quickly in Mexico, and that's from where it all started and, and then um, uh, has been spreading. This is a particular flu virus strain, isn't it, uh, that's causing the current problems. How far has this actually got now? The definition of a pandemic, I guess, is quite specific, but it is actually fairly worldwide, isn't it? Yes, I think at, at the moment, if you look at maps, uh, and there are um, currently updated maps um, published by organisations such as the WHO and also the European Centre for Disease Control, the ECDC, they publish maps every day. And um, if, if you look at those maps at the moment, it is pretty widespread. There are some countries or some continents, I should say, um, such as Africa, where at the moment there is not much reported, but that could well have to do uh, with the reporting systems um, more than anything else. Uh, because at the moment, the southern hemisphere, they are in, in kind of the seasonal winter and they are much more likely to, to see cases. And that's where a lot of cases are now being reported. Now, in terms of the actual phases, the, um, the WHO, they have this um, six-phase system they use to describe pandemics and and there are very clear definitions again as to when a pandemic should be declared and that is when there is the same newly emerging strain identified in more than one WHO region which is more or less like continents so yeah. but they call them WHO regions and that's the definition they use and that's fulfilled clearly because it's more than two regions now anyway. So that's how they came um, to declare the pandemic. Now, I think what has emerged in relation to these definitions is that there are some issues related to the severity or the lack of the use of some kind of measure of severity in that definition. Uh-huh. It's, it's a purely geographical and kind of space-time definition but it does not say anything about the severity of... And I think that has caused some debate in, so in relation... It's more panic than there needed to be? Or? Well, I'm not sure about panic. I, th- I mean, it is, a, it is a matter of concern, and, and, mm-hmm. and obviously there have been deaths, and people are worried. But I think it just has, it has demonstrated that 
you know, pandemics as we're seeing them today are very different from the last pandemics because the whole context has changed so much in terms of the, the travel, for example. I mean, so that's people's behavior, but then also we have now um, different drugs. We have things like Tamiflu uh -huh. that was not available in any of the earlier pandemics. So I think that is going to change quite a lot of the, the context of pandemics in the future. And, and as it evolves, I think all, everybody involved is actually learning a lot. So this may then well be um, reflected later on and, and some of these definitions we're now using may well be changed because it is a bit of a limitation that you have to declare a pandemic and then have to explain it to ordinary people who yes. don't actually see much of a difference to a regular flu. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Because when you hear pandemic, people think like very dramatic Yes, obviously it has been in the past, uh, sort of Spanish flu, etc. Yes. So is this, this current strain, which obviously has been called swine flu, is it something that did actually come from pigs originally and is it actually circulating out there in pigs at the moment? In terms of the terminology, I mean, there's been a lot of debate and there are actually quite clear guidelines how influenza virus strains have to be called. Now, the thing here is that the genetic makeup of this specific virus strain is quite complex and virologists are able to kind of disentangle the different elements and genes and trace it back to the likely source of origin. Mm -hmm. And it seems that most of the genetic makeup is consistent with um, flu viruses that we know from pigs. However, we do not at the moment have any data on the level of occurrence of this specific strain in pigs. So it was first de detected in humans. It has been very effectively spreading in human to human. And there have been some reports of transmissions back from humans into pigs okay. and also into turkeys. So pigs are susceptible to this virus and they have a special role in the ecology of, of flu viruses anyway. So... The term swine flu has been debated greatly and a lot of the international organizations are now moving away from it and call it the pandemic H1N1 strain, uh, which is a lot less um, controversial. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is the, the role then of pigs? Because we hear a lot about new uh, strains arising and, and obviously being given the name swine flu or bird flu. And how readily do these viruses jump species and what's the significance of that for general spread of these viruses? Ecology of um, influenza viruses is, is quite complex and has a lot to do with the presence or absence of, of receptors for as, as for other viruses, whether they can actually dock to the cells and then start infection. Mm -hmm. Pigs are one of those species. Their cells are susceptible to influenza viruses from different sources, and that can then create kind of reassortment and, and genetic reemergence of new strains. Uh, while other species uh, are much more restricted, and they are uh, only susceptible to certain flu strains. And most mammals have kind of their own flu strains. So there's um, equine influenza and there's human influenza, and some of these strains are quite host specific. But some species, such as pigs, they are also sometimes called the mixing vessel. So they are susceptible to different strains from, say, avian origin and human origin. And that can then create 
uh, a completely new virus, so um, by such as concurrent infections. Exactly. Right. Exactly. How readily does transmission occur between uh, humans? There is emerging data on this because obviously, as the um, the outbreaks proceed in the different countries, um, data is accumulated and, and being analysed by epidemiologists, and they can come up with specific indicators that measure the number of secondary cases that you can have per infected person. And it seems to be, at the moment, it's slightly higher than um, the normal seasonal flu. So it is a, a quite an effective transmission mechanism. So they're talking about uh, 1.4 cases or secondary cases by primary case. So that means you have more than one. That means that it's actually spreading. And that's an, an indicator they use for the, for the transmission effectiveness. Okay, so it is fairly contagious. I guess versus sort of pandemics in the past or epidemics in the past, presumably things like population density we tend to live in or international travel and so on must predispose to these things spreading a lot faster. Yeah, I, I think particularly the international travel has illustrated that nowadays it's, it's almost impossible to try to limit any new influenza strain that is as effective as this one in, in being transmitted to restrict it to, to any geographic region. It's, it's impossible because also the um, incubation period is, is very short and then there is virus being spread already before the symptoms actually become visible. So I think international travel definitely has, has made it very, very hard in terms of disease control to limit the spread. And other things like uh, public transport and uh, any kind of event where you have a lot of susceptible people confined to reasonably small spaces that obviously furthers um, the transmission. Yes, yeah, so as you say, uh, the incubation period is, is critical in that. So, I mean, measures, for example, like taking temperatures at airports, for example, is presumably not going to, to catch a large number of people. No, this is um, not something I think that is currently seriously pursued, particularly also because it's very well known that a virus can also be shed before temperature become detectably high. So, And, and then there is, it's, it's quite unspecific as well. And it's very disruptive um, as well if you have false positives and, yeah. and people are being picked up and they have something else or maybe, I don't know, it's just a, a false alarm. So things like that have not been discussed in the context of, of this current event. There have been other um, interventions that are being considered, such as school closures and, and things like that. Uh, I think in some of the... Um, Central and uh, Southern American countries where they had a lot of cases, they have stopped things like um, sports events and have asked people to kind of stay at home if they don't really have to go out and, and things like that. So I think anything that kind of reduces the contact frequency and intensity between individuals will have an effect. But again, recent simulations using data from this pandemic have shown that things like school closures 
have only limited impact. They have to be combined with other other interventions such as use of antivirals and things like that. Okay, so I think we'll, we'll come back to the uh, antiviral story, but um, just in terms of the, the, the sort of case-by-case basis, how are uh, these cases actually confirmed in, uh, in people or indeed in animals? It's uh, interesting that it seems that countries also develop different what they call case definitions. And, and at the moment, here in the UK, what's, what's being used is um, a case definition that is based on um, clinical syndrome, if you like. So it's a combination of high temperature with a number of other clinical symptoms such as coughing or sore throat and things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a clinical case definition that is being used uh, by the NHS and you have these telephone numbers and you call and the people are instructed to to use that case definition. But obviously you could also have much more specific case definition when you include um, laboratory testing. And some countries use that much more extensively. It obviously has to do with capacity as well. And, and as the number of cases increases, the labs they have, there's just no way they can analyze all these all these swaps. But in principle you can isolate the virus from nasal swaps and um, this is a, a routine um, diagnostic procedure that is now also well established in uh, definitely in all European countries, uh, all developed countries for sure now have access to the material that they need, uh, need to make the specific um, diagnosis of this specific virus. Okay, so I guess that was done sort of in the early phases, but obviously the numbers are now too great. It's too much too labour-intensive to do that in every case. Yes, and, and, and if you look at some of the statistics that are published by some of the international organisations, that obviously makes it also more difficult when countries use different case definitions. So you cannot really compare very easily what the number of cases in one country, how it translates to the situation in, in, a, in another country. So it's something to, to keep in mind when, when looking at, at, at those case numbers, and, and that's a challenge, obviously, for the international interpretation for, for the data. Okay, so it's, it's still to some extent regionalised how we, how we look at these diseases then? The WHO definitely aims to provide standardised guidance and kind of a minimum harmonisation of how things are reported and particularly also in terms of preparedness and and intervention. And I think that's also something perhaps that this incident highlighted, the immense progress that has been made in terms of communication between different organisations across disciplines, for example, veterinary and and public health organisations, but then also um, at the different levels uh, from country uh, level to WHO level, so the international level and the regional and national levels. I think it is quite impressive in terms of also the uh, technology that's being used and how accessible it, it now is for everybody. So we, we can all follow, say, um, media briefings from the WHO over the internet. Everybody who is interested can can follow these, while you know, in the past you would have to wait until the journalist to sit in that room kind of digest it and write uh-huh. it and it's published so it's, so it's quite amazing yeah. Definitely a lot better. yeah yeah and I think also the access 
to the, that information, unrestricted access for, for everybody. How severe are the symptoms then that are being caused by this strain as opposed to some of the previous ones? I guess we sort of alluded to this earlier, but um, obviously I guess a lot of people will be interested in this from a personal point of view. I think the common view at the moment is that the clinical signs are not uh, very different from a regular seasonal flu. Um, so that means it will be self-limiting in, in most cases. But what is emerging, uh, and I guess this is also um, related to the fact that this is a new virus strain, is that some of the patterns in terms of age, for example, age groups that are specifically at risk is, is very different from what you would expect from from seasonal flu. So a lot of elderly people seem to be a lot less susceptible than than younger people. So when you look at, at the distribution of affected age groups, for example, in the UK, so the, the maximum actually is in the age group 10 to 19 years of age, while with seasonal flu you would expect a much higher uh, group also in in older people who have other illnesses. And, and the other thing that is um, being worked on at, at very high intensity at the moment is um, to identify so-called risk groups other than age-related. And, and some of these have been emerging, such as um, people who have underlying um, illnesses, such as a variety of lung illnesses, kidney, liver, and heart diseases, but then also people who have uh, diagnosed asthma, some people with diabetes, and then pregnant women, which obviously is something that is, is very, very sensitive because there is two lives at risk, then uh, that's something that um, is, is quite worrying. Okay, so they're sort of uh, prioritising people who already have diseases which are going to predispose or that the infection will predispose to them worsening, I guess. They looked at severe diseases and deaths and looked at, is there a pattern in, in other factors, other diseases, but also other risk factors um, other than age that can help to identify these. And this is then being used by setting priorities, for example, for antiviral prescription. Uh-huh. And of course, uh, here in the UK or in the Northern Hemisphere, generally, we're heading now towards autumn. So are we going to expect the number of cases to increase then? I think so. I think nobody knows exactly what's yeah. going to happen. And as we go, we are learning and, and there is evidence being accumulated as we speak. And, and that's another thing that I think is very different from previous pandemics. I mean, just the capacity of health systems to accumulate data and analyze it in, in very, very short time periods is just quite uh, impressive. So I think that will help us also um, to, to control this. But what exactly is going to happen? Um, there is a lot of talk about the, the different waves that we are expecting. So there is talk about this second wave. At the moment, as most people will probably have realized, uh, the number of cases is dropping. But we are, as you say, we're heading into the flu season, so there will be a new wave coming. And what that's going to look like, I think nobody knows exactly, but um, yeah, people are getting prepared and um, it's probably not a good idea to plan any kind of major events for 
the last quarter of, of this year because it's just really not sure what's yeah, a bit of disruption. Yeah, what's going to happen. And it's going to coincide with the children going back to school and so on since they're obviously one of the major susceptible groups. Yeah, plus uh, also people coming back from holidays and, mm-hmm. you know, the travel-related cases could also um, increase depending on where, where these people, particularly if they have travelled to the southern hemisphere, so they, that could also kind of... Um, boost a new introduction wave of, of virus. Okay, so I guess we've already mentioned a bit about the, the, the potential measures that we might use on a population level then to reduce transmission. Perhaps you'd like to add to that a bit more, but also then to talk about what we can do as individuals to, uh, to reduce the, the risk of transmission. Yeah, the population level, I mean, there are these things as, as school closures and certain events um, being cancelled. That's something that will be looked at, uh, I'm sure, as cases, case numbers increase. Um, for, in terms of individual level, I guess this has also been communicated quite intensively over the last weeks. It's kind of general hygiene, particularly hand hygiene, washing your hands uh, or use some of these um, alcoholic hand gels or hand rubs um, that's something that is is being recommended and then in general avoid high risk person gatherings so public transport obviously the tube is something in tube in a rush hour that was probably the the most effective um, and then you have if you have to t- touch something you you should wash your hands as, as much as possible because yes, the that's, virus survives outside the body yeah and then if you kind of bring your hand back to your um, eyes or mouth that's the most likely entry point okay we should finish by um, establishing that, that it, it's it's not a hugely severe infection anyway and that it's not a, not a cause for panic but, but just to, to take uh, precautions, I suppose. Definitely. I think it's also, in a way, um, really the ideal training exercise um, for countries and the general level of preparedness and uh, the mechanisms they use to control pandemics or infectious diseases in general, how they communicate, how they interact with different stakeholders, how they interact internationally, how they communicate the data, how they collect it, how they analyze it. So in a way, it is also a huge opportunity to really go through those processes and and optimize and learn as much as possible. So so in a way, it is... um, almost an ideal situation. I mean, you have kind of almost like a simulation exercise. I mean, you have the the pandemic, but you haven't got all these severe consequences that we have seen in the past. So in a way, it's really a learning opportunity. And obviously, we do have some individuals who are severely affected and and these need to be identified and, and treated as quickly as possible. Okay, Katharina Tsar, thank you very much. And thanks very much to all our listeners out there. As ever, if you have any comments or suggestions with regard to the podcast, please feel free to contact us at podcast.rbc.ac.uk. And I hope you'll be able to join us again next time when we'll be covering the virological aspects of the swine flu epidemic.